if you can, put on music. We're, we're about to start the show, and photographer and model Nigel Barker is telling us how to actually look good when, when you get your picture taken. Other little trick, think of something you like to eat. And as you're doing so, you go, mm, that tastes great, <laughs> right? And then your eyes tell that message to the camera of, mm, you know, this looks good. It's about your eyes. Hmm. It's, it's so humanizing, though, to think of Cindy Crawford in, like, this, you know, fantastic, you know, swimsuit as she pose and know that she's thinking of, like, a pepperoni pizza. <laughs> um, I don't think she is. Actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll have more how-tos on how to do everything after the news. L- listening to audio, listening to the radio... One thing, you, you don't always know what the people you're hearing look like. Karen here has turned that into a kind of game. Yeah, um, well, it all kind of started one day. I was listening to Fresh Air, and I found myself really curious about the appearance of the interview subject. And I really tried to create an image of what I thought she should look like. And when I Googled her, I I realized she was a young, blonde, attractive woman. Well, describe what you what you had thought she would look like. Well, I thought I mean, I I was fairly close. I did think, you know, I knew she was young um, based on her voice. I thought she had a pretty fun personality. I could see her being a little bit provocative in her, you know, clothing choices. So really, uh, Karen, what you have here is you have found a great way to pass time when you're stuck in traffic is you listen to a, a an interview, in this case, Fresh Air, which gives you you know 40 minutes with one person. And you spend yep. that time trying to figure out what they look like. You get to work and then you either confirm that you were right or discover you were totally off. Exactly. And most of the time I'm totally off. And that's more interesting. <laughs> well, I th- I think this is a I think this is a really fun game. And thank thanks for telling us about it. Yeah, thanks so much. You know what we should do? We should uh, we should play this game for the rest of this episode. As as you're listening, you can draw uh, the people that are on the show. Yeah. Uh, t- so uh, whoever whoever you like, or you can do everybody. Uh, imagine them, draw a picture of them, and send it to us at uh, howto at npr.org. We can give up prizes. We'll give prizes to the best picture and the worst picture. Definitely the worst picture. Not far from us here in Chicago at Northwestern University, they're working on new antidepressant drugs. And and one thing you have to do uh, in developing these drugs is you have to figure out what happiness is, what's going on in the body, and, you know, how to how to measure it. Doctors Joe Moskal and Jeffrey Bergdorf do this, and they do this with rats. Can, can you guys just uh, show us how, how you do this? What you're going to hear are squeaks, but those are not squeaks you'd hear in the lab. They're ultrasonic vocalizations, and uh, um, we pick them up in the microphone and then translate them. So the squeaks you hear arguably... Our rat, rat is rat laughter, for want of a better. Talk about anthropomorphizing. But for all intents and purposes, it really is. So, and you're talking about tickling rats here. That's correct. That's correct. How do you, how do, you do it? How do you physically tickle a rat? Do you, do you tickle the rats? Uh, yes. 
because I mean rats are pretty gross. No, they're no gross. rats are great. A rat can be like a dog. Yeah, they're really right? smart, trainable. If you were to make a rat your pet, you wouldn't be sorry. So, uh, getting to that question though, if you could kind of describe for people that can't see it, uh, just what you're doing when you're tickling a rat. Well, it's much the same way that you would tickle a, a human child or tickle a, or play with a dog. So you roll them on their back, and with your fingers, you perform tickling motions, and you, you scratch their belly and scratch their um, the back of their head. It's just like you would do with a child. You said they make vocalizations? That's correct. Uh, 50 kilohertz ultrasonic vocalizations. We can't hear these vocalizations. So the reason that they the animals have evolved to produce ultrasound is so they could communicate to each other at a frequency that predators couldn't hear them. So when rats are happy, they are communicating in a way that only other rats can hear. That's correct. Okay, so at this point, uh, they bring up a video of a rat being tickled. So what we're looking at is uh, Jeff Bergdorf's hand tickling that rat. And they call his hand Mr. Hand. Yeah, basically another word for Jeff in this lab is Mr. Hand. Okay, so like I was saying, when you look at this, I'm sure the last thing you'll want to do is what you'll see Mr. Hand do. I'm fa- if I told you to go in and do what Jeff's going to do, you'd probably recoil and think the rat is going to bite you. So with that in mind, check it out. The, the squeaks you're hearing right now, they've been uh, adjusted so the, the human ear can hear them. You'll never actually hear this sound. If you're, you know, in a rat den. Yeah, you'd hear it in a Disney movie, like Ratatouille. I think they laugh like that. Yeah. Mostly in a rat den, you're you're just going to hear your own screaming. There's Mr. Hand. Did that not look like unfun, right? I mean, that looks scary, right? It's. I mean, it's, uh, the hand, of course, is is the same size as the the rat. Right, it's just, now watch. Look at him whip right back. He goes, whoa, whoa. And you're hearing the squeaks, and you're seeing Mr. Hand toss the rat to the far corner of the, of the box, and look how quickly the rat just comes right back. That rat wants very much to be with Mr. Hand. Hold on to that for a second there, Jeff, so I can catch up to you. Now Mr. Hand is gone, and look, it's like, hey, where's my friend? Yeah, we, we, saw the, we saw the hand kind of on its own without the rat, and it was making the tickling motion, and the, the rat ran over to it. As fast as it could. In fact, that's one of our operational measures, right, yeah. how fast the rats come back to the hand. Calling it Mr. Hand, I'm, it's, it's funny. I'm curious how that works in a lab setting, like when you guys are, I guess, talking about this experiment. What's an example of a sentence that one scientist doing this research might say to another that uses the phrase Mr. Hand? So scientifically, we refer to it as heterospecific hand play. Heterospecific hand play, can you break that down? Sure. So conspecific would be uh, two members of the same species. Heterospecific would be a member of the other species. So me being human and the rat being a, a rat. But you don't like that. It's okay. It's fine. It's just fine. It just makes me laugh. It just sounds so complex for tickling. Yeah. <laughs> but... We dare not go whipping around talking about tickling and laughter and happiness. We have to, you know, get a little bit more scientific and, frankly, a little bit more, re- you know, uh, what's the word, operational, so that, you know, everything's reproducible and people really know what we're talking about. So that's a good definition. So when I go home tonight with my kids, I could we could engage in a little con-specific yeah, hand play? Correct. Right. That's right. Exactly. Are there, are there ticklish rats and non-ticklish rats? Yes. And as you would predict, the ticklish rats are resilient to depression. And the non-tickless rats are not. What we find is that when we have a, an animal that 
isn't responsive. They won't show the hedonic vocalizations. They'll show the aversive vocalizations. So again, this is relevant to depression. One of the main symptoms of depression, or one of the main issues, is that in everyday life, we all encounter uh, essentially uh, ambiguous situations. But the depressed person interprets that in a negative, in a negative, with a negative valence, is aversive. Whereas the resilient person can see the half full part of it and have fun with it. So can you give me an example to kind of show me the range between the hedonic, what was it, response and the averse? Aversive. Um, so the aversive calls almost sound like crying. A low, a low, long tone. Like, ah. Actually, it's a whistle. And sort of cross-species aversive vocalizations have long, uh, are long and low. So human crying, for example. And Jeff, can you do the happy sounds too? So frequency modulated, Mm -hmm. short. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I, I guess a lot of things are this way in science, but it's so interesting that, you know, in 10 years or, or something, there may be a person who had depression and found a solution for it from a drug, and they can they could, you know, thank a rat that was tickled in a lab. You better believe it, and uh, it goes way farther than that. I think we have E. coli, which is a bacteria, to thank for the genetic code, and we have mold to thank for penicillin, and so on and so on. So, uh, yeah, no surprise. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Come back anytime, and uh, maybe next time you can tickle some rats. We'll set you up and see if you can be good rat ticklers. Can we tickle you? I don't like being tickled. It weirds me out. I know. Just <laughs> you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no. Of course you can tickle me. You can play with me anytime. In fact, the whole place is a playground. Come back and do experiments. We will convince you that that is the same as tickling. You'll feel just as good doing uh, a molecular biology experiment as you would tickling me, if not better. <laughs> Joe Moskal and Jeffrey Bergdorf tickle rats at Northwestern University's Falk Center for Molecular Therapeutics. If you want to draw either of, of the uh, doctors we just spoke to, it probably makes sense to hear Jeffrey uh, pretending to be a happy rat one, one more time. Spring is here, and you're thinking, now's the perfect time to have a cookout, to build a fire. But before you run off looking for twigs and leaves, we read that Doritos can be used as kindling. Now, this seems unlikely, so we're going to go test it outside of our office. On hand, for safety's sake, is Claude, our director of facilities here. As always, you'll know we're there when we start speaking in hushed tones. I think we want to form them into a good pyramid. Ventilation is the key with any fire, especially with the Dorito fire. Here we go. Starting to see some smoke. Smells really good. Yeah, it's roasting the Dorito. Oh, it really smells good. Oh, it's going. Yeah, we yeah, got it, ourselves a little, little fire. We really, it's really going now. It's bubbling on the surface of the Dorito. All right, now we've got it. We've actually got a sizable fire here. Uh, hey, uh, we're gonna need to put this out. Claude, we point. we have a situation here. Okay, Claude is distracted talking to some other people. Claude, we have a safety situation. We got a fire. It is, we got it is really fire. going.
Alright, Claude's adding another flavor. Those burn faster with the flavor, look at that. Yeah, well the spicy hot, that makes perfect sense that this, they would burn faster. We're gonna add some cool ranch to the fire to see if it has the opposite effect. If you're thinking the yeah. cool ranch might cool off the... I think the... it would, yeah, it would, true to its name, it would cool down the flame. Wow, it's really hot. They're really going up quick. There is a, an, a slick, there's some oil slick at the, at the, around the edges of the fire here. What yeah, do you suppose that is? Dorito soup. <laughs> you know what that is? Burnt Dorito oh. soup. If I, were to, if I were to show you this, fla this fire, the, the ashes of what was left here after the flames have gone out, what would you guess that was that had just burned? I would have never thought what that was is something I would have put in my no, body. Yeah. You know what we should do is once we put it out, we should go in the newsroom yes. and ask somebody what they think was in there. All right, so what, what we have here is this really disgusting charred mass. These are the remains of the Doritos. Yeah, and uh, we're going to take it in now and, and see what our office mates think it is. I think it was paper, cardboard. What is that? So right here on the side, it looks yeah. like some kind of caramelized something. Yeah. That's, it's dark purplish. It looks like motor oil. Mm, like pork. Could it be pork rinds? You know what? And then when you pull back, it looks like um, a burnt frog. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems a little papery. <laughs> looks like a charred teddy bear. It's not really helping me. <laughs> I mean, it looks like wood or something, yeah. like some accelerant for an arsonist. I mean, I can't. Doritos? We heard from Evelyn. She says she listens to How to Do Everything while backpacking through Central America. In fact, this very moment, she is in a hammock in El Salvador. So, uh, Evelyn, these next 15 seconds are for you. It's kind of a weird uh, position to be in. I'm, I'm really, I'm just jealous of Evelyn. It's overwhelming. I'm just filled with, with jealousy. Because she's in a hammock in Central America. Yeah, I'm not in a hammock. Do you think she took the backpack off before she laid down in the hammock? Well, that's the nice thing about a hammock, is that that, that rope weave. Yeah, it's gonna, you're gonna have room for your backpack. The Boston Marathon is Monday, and we have a little tip for those of you running uh, that marathon or any long race. Uh, online to help us now is Paul, who actually ran a marathon yesterday. So, Paul, uh, what was it like putting on your pants this morning? Um, it wasn't so much the pants as it was getting into shoes. And I'm not sure why, but, like, my shoes were just giving me the business because I couldn't really get all the way down there to kind of slip them on. They're kind of like loafers. That was more of the issue. Huh. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't, the pants did not feel great. I'll freely admit that. Where are you right now? I'm in my office. And you're on a mobile phone? Yes. Okay. Can we ask you to walk to the nearest set of stairs? Uh, sure. Hold on one second. All right. All right. I think I found it. Yes, I'm upstairs. All right. I want you to walk down those stairs and just go down eight stairs and, and describe okay. what you're feeling as you go down. I'm doing them one at a time, and it does not feel great. Um, just an unbelievable amount of soreness as I pick up each leg and sort of lower it to the next one <laughs> Yeah. Uh, with heavy use of the rail. So. Yeah. Okay. Now go back up. I'm sorry. The reason we're doing this is because 
probably the most excruciating thing after a marathon is going downstairs. But, yeah, the, the going back up is not that bad. I can do those one like a normal person, one foot in front of the other, but I cannot go down like one stair, one stair, one stair, one stair. Huh. Okay, now here is a trick that is going to change the next 24 hours of your life for the better. These same eight stairs, turn yeah. around and walk down them backwards and tell me what you feel. Oh, that's much better. <laughs> And, you know, people are going to see you walking downstairs, and they're either going to think you're crazy or they're going to know you ran a marathon and they're going to pat you on the back. <laughs> exactly. You know, you should really, you might consider keeping your number on, your bib, whatever they call that. That way, when you are walking down the stairs, there'll be no doubt that you're not a crazy person and that you just won't. Don't, don't worry. Last night, I was wearing swag from the race. So, okay. You know, it, it made it, it, made, it was not, it was not, so it was like a blunt hammer that I'd done something stupid. All right. Well, um, I hope everyone running a marathon this weekend or the next weekend will remember to walk downstairs backwards. Sounds good. Have a good one, guys. Hey, All you right. too. There is that substance in Jerry. That yeah, absolutely looks like pine tar. Yeah, that's not legal. Oh, Lord, there's a lot of gunk on there. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. A lot of pitchers will tell you they do a lot of different things, but generally it's not quite as obvious as no, that. No, I would agree. Listen, I don't know if you've noticed, but the pitcher out there who has a no-hitter going with two outs in the fourth inning is cheating, I think. What you're listening to there are the Boston Red Sox TV announcers during a recent Red Sox-Yankees game. They're talking about an oily brown smudge on Yankee pitcher Michael Pineda's hand. Now, they, they think it's pine tar, which is a substance uh, you know pitchers will use to doctor the ball, maybe give it a little extra motion. Keith Law writes about baseball for ESPN. So, Keith, I, I don't really understand how this would uh, affect a ball. Can you tell us what's going on there? Sure. Well, what makes a pitched ball break in any direction, it all comes down to friction. And because the ball is not perfectly spherical, it has raised seams, pitchers can manipulate the ball. They can just change the grip. They can change how they release the ball, what kind of spin they put on the ball. So the idea of using a foreign substance, pine tar, Vaseline, used to be spit. That was actually legal in baseball until about 1920. You know, to me, it's always been the question of, uh, and this applies to scuffing the ball also. It's obviously a more permanent alteration, but it's the same principle. Is, well, that's great. You can make it move. But are these guys doing physics calculations in their heads? Yeah. Thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to make it move exactly this way and still be able to throw it for a strike. I would imagine that that becomes quite difficult. Well, so how, well, maybe we could talk about with this, just, just this Pineda case where mm -hmm. he was suspected of using pine tar. How would he get the pine tar onto the ball? Like where, where does he keep it? Uh, under the brim of the hat is a popular place. Okay. Uh, inside a sleeve can be a popular place. Uh, back at the neck, uh, it's been suggested some pitchers have stuff in their hair, like a hair gel. Obviously, that would serve the same purpose. Really? Anything like that. I mean, it used to be that pitchers would just spit on the ball or go to their mouths, which is now, actually now, I believe it's an automatic ball. If you go to your mouth, you might get one more warning. I mean, the unfortunate thing is some pitchers just do that just to keep the, their fingers from feeling too dry. Right. But, of course, if you're sort of all over your hand and then on the ball, well, it's just gross, first of all, and then, obviously, it's against the rule. So... I, I'm wondering about sort of the the stigma of this. If let's say a, a pitcher is using uh, pine tar or scuffing the ball, how does that compare to say a batter corking his bat? 
For reasons I could not explain to you, it's seen as worse to cork a bat than to scuff a ball uh, or, or otherwise doctor a ball. I could speculate that it's that doctoring the baseball has that history. Like I said, spitballers were legal until 1920, and the few known spitballers at the time were actually grandfathered in so they could continue throwing. I think Burley Grimes was the last one into the 1920s. He was still allowed to throw the pitch. Whereas corking the bat uh, or otherwise doctoring the bat is, I guess, and by the way, is generally seen by physicists to be not effective. Um, But it is still seen as the greater transgression and will and has led to uh, longer suspensions. I mean, I can't imagine a bat shattering at this point and cork flying out or other non-bat substances, and the other team saying, nah, we're good, don't worry about it. Whereas yeah. in this case, the Red Sox were fully aware of what was going on with Pineda, and they were like, <clears throat> we didn't see anything. Really? The suspicion is that it's possible one of their own has been doctoring the baseball also. Oh. But that is a claim without that has been repeated in the media that's without firm proof. So it seems like double speculation to me, but I mean, again, they were caught, Pineda was caught on television. The commissioner's office said, we're not doing anything about it. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to us about this, Keith. Yeah, my pleasure. That does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? Well, I learned that you can be a scientist and spend most of your days tickling rats. I wonder what his dissertation defense was like. I mean, I think you could potentially... Uh, you know, just tickle your academic advisors into submission. You know what? If you're out there and you're defending your dissertation, if things aren't going well, just uh, pick the most senior member of the faculty. Start tickling. Get right up under the ribs. Yeah. Right right in the soft spot. I learned that I'm not the only one who spends um, a lot of time when listening to the radio, imagining what the people look like. Yeah, it's weird, right? Yeah. And, you know, working in public radio, I've been surprised by what a lot of the kind of voices I grew up with, what they look like. Oh, for sure. Did you know um, Steve Inskeep has a dorsal fin? How to Do Everything is produced by Steven Tobias with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Seth Kelly. Actually, uh, listen to what it sounds like when Seth cries. Our artist-in-residence is Justin Witte. And special thanks this week to Nigel Barker for his tips on how to take a good picture. He is collaborating with Art Van on their spring furniture catalog. You know, I realize we never congratulated the winner of our March Madness tournament. Oh, you mean Joshua Hirschland? That's exactly who I mean. Joshua, we'll, we'll be sending you your prize. Send us your questions at howto at npr.org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Mike Danforth. And I'm Ian Chillog. This is NPR.